For April 7th, 2014, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 301. Dude, your Hydra's hailing. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm Matt Rather, and I'm here with Pete Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Hello, Matthew. It is dark time for us. <laughs> it's absolutely right. The Overthinking It security state has reached uh, epic proportions and is, you know, uh, a, a dark force has grown within <laughs> Overthinking It. Win- loyal win- to- <laughs> Winter has come, and it needs its soldiers. <laughs> Uh, so it's 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 one of our famous two-handers, Pete, tonight. Oh yeah, or infamous two-handers. Uh, the last time we we uh, we two white guys speculated on on privilege and why it's not such a bad thing after all. Uh, and, suppose, was that what that podcast was about? <laughs> that wasn't no. my sense for what that podcast was about. My, no, it's a, that, my, podcast, that podcast was about shame shaming. That's what that right. podcast was about. <laughs> that, that, that podcast is is um, how hard it was about how hard it is to live without running afoul of your own political convictions at yes. some point. Which is also uh, what the, the thing we're going to talk about today is going to be about. Sort of. <laughs> we really, yeah, we have a um, we have a. Uh, uh, yeah, a, a small set of hobby horses, right? It's it's like Ryan and I say on the TFT podcast, right? Like we have a hammer, but fortunately the world is full of nails. <laughs> Look at all of these nails around me. Um, so, uh, Pete, have you found your keys? Yes, I have my keys. Wait, okay. I never lost my keys. What are you talking about? Oh, good. <laughs> I have my keys right – you asked that. I literally have my keys sitting in front of me on my desk, but I never lost my keys. I never spent my lost my key points. That's so, good. So you still have all of your lost your key points. I do. I've retained them unless they've and been stolen by someone. I, I mean can you use the, the Konami code to, to do a cheat to get infinite lost your key points <laughs> at some point? Uh, let's let's take that to the comment thread. <laughs> uh, all right, so so we're going to talk about Captain America, Winter Soldier, and it- wait, is thunder not the right sound? Wait, say, say it again, and we'll try to come up with another one. Okay, good. We're going to talk about Captain America, Winter Soldier. Jingle bells, jingle bells, <laughs> chestnuts roasting on an open fire, <laughs> flipping through the snow, jumping. <laughs> Lots of buildings, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> throwing my shield at you, <laughs> hitting you in the head. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's it is just coincidence that uh, we are recording this on the same night as the Game of Thrones season four premiere. Uh, so Winter Soldier has come, but winter is coming. And if you are interested in Game of Thrones and, and really in our audience who isn't, uh, we're going to be recapping that live tomorrow, Pete, and you'll, you'll be hosting that, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, we'll be streaming that live on YouTube. We'll be going, we're going video on that, right? We are. I, yeah. I, I think we are, yeah. So if you want to watch it live, you can uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for Overthinking It at, at YouTube or clicking through uh, the link uh, that's in the header on overthinkingit.com. But yeah, it's uh, we'll, we'll, you'll be able to watch live at 9 p.m. Eastern Time and uh, archived on YouTube and posted on Overthinking It later. We also have a TV Recaps podcast feed so we are almost we are almost pathologically available to you we're like uh we're like 
a relationship where we don't have any lives for ourselves. We just try to uh, we just try to make you happy. We are a, like a benevolent, vigilant helicarrier hovering <laughs> bre- suborbitably above your above your uh, your skulls and hats, looking down on you with a wish for order and peace and tranquility. All right, hail Hydra! So let's go. Let's go. Uh, hey Matt. Hey Matt. Hail Hydra. Hail Hydra. Hail Hydra. Yeah, I, the fact that it was Gary Shandling was <laughs> like icing on that particular. Spoilers! There are spoilers in this podcast about Captain America: The Winter Soldier, which you should probably see because it's pretty good. But you know what? If you're not going to see it, let's be honest. All right, <laughs> just listen to the podcast. Don't lie to yourself and tell yourself you're going to go. Oh yeah, you know what? I was totally going to go see Captain America: The Winter Soldier, and you know what? I didn't get around to it in this weekend. Next weekend, I'm totally going to see it. You're probably not, all right? You're probably going to have other things to do. So just listen to the podcast. Let us spoil it for you. No, seriously, there are spoilers. So if you want to go see the movie, uh, go see the movie and then come back. But you I'm know, not sure that I mean, I'm not sure that there are. I guess there's one sort of mid movie, but there aren't a lot of things in this movie uh, that you know that rise to the level of like spoilable, right? Like where if you go into this film knowing a certain plot twist, you won't be uh, you won't be happy. Well, yeah, but that isn't about that. It's about etiquette. It's about us making sure that we treat people with respect and kindness. That's what it's about. It's not about whether – it's Matt, it's not about whether we decide what's right for people. It's about giving people the opportunity and the freedom to decide for themselves what's right for them when it comes to people talking about movies in front of them. It's about why we signed up for this, this for this man's army back in 1940, back when we were punching Hitler in the face, all right? And just because this country's changed doesn't mean we've changed, all right? So we got to hew to our principles. We got to stick stick out our stick at our upper lips with that's British. Uh, got to give them the old right hook for justice. Um, freedom <laughs> yeah, and liberty. No, that- the Divergent podcast was a couple of weeks ago. That that, that was the, the the theme of this. Um, so uh, all right, so let's. Uh, it's it's just you and me, Pete. But let's let's ask the question. Yes. Uh, now that we've given our spoiler warning for uh, for Winter Soldier, mm-hmm. um, if you had to name a, a soldier after a season of the year, what season <laughs> would you? If you had to. Yes. If someone, you know, I don't know, if someone wiped your memory with a giant uh, electroshock machine <laughs> and uh, said and said that you and your metal arm have one job, and that is to name a soldier <laughs> after a season of the year, and uh, and tell me a little bit about what that soldier does. Um, what what would it be? And and uh, uh, what season and and what would your soldier do? First in the alphabet, let me check. Oh, it's you. (laughs) Thanks. So I interpreted this to mean name an actual soldier after a season of the year. So I will pick one of the greatest soldiers and servants to his country in the memory of the last two generations. Bob Ross, a Vietnam veteran. Uh, you know, a brave, a brave defender of his duty to this country and this country's call to serve, uh, and a man who, in his retirement from the armed services, uh, became the autumn soldier. 
the painter of happy little trees and beautiful foliage on public television screens uh, for for decades, and uh, for for the, the, a face, a kind face that would greet children not watching the show they thought they were watching, uh, that could stick with them into adulthood to understand that maybe in fact they were watching the show that they needed to watch. Uh, yeah, no, I mean obviously Bob Ross. Uh, as a painter, as a man for all seasons, he's painted little bits of white paint on top of mountains, little bits of brown paint on top of mountains, little bits of green paint on top of mountains, mostly next mm-hmm. to rivers with trees in the foreground. But uh, I think he is most suitably the autumn soldier, the leaf, the, the, not the leaf peeper, you know, but but the man who makes <laughs> sure that when the leaf peepers venture out, there are leaves to be peeped, and also the man who brings leaves to be peeped to the peepless. To the peepless peoples, the peepless peoples of the peeping peoples. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, and it also suits. I think it was also suitable to refer to Bob Ross as an autumn soldier because there's a sense of of the release and of the letting go, but which has, still has some manner of the vigor of sort of uh, Tennyson's Ulysses in Bob Ross's professional. A televised painting career, right? right? Like this is a man who has, who has, hopefully, we would hope, uh, have has already done when he's come back from Vietnam has already done the most difficult things he's going to have to do in his life, right? And uh, the most painful, the most painful vistas he's encountered are things that he's already, he's already, those are burdens he's already shouldered, right? Those those things are are those are, those are the things he is carrying, as Tim O'Brien uh, would in <laughs> fact say, uh, and as such, you know, he has he has uh, he has ascended through spring and he has trudged through his long hot summer and this is the cooling autumn of his years when he decides that uh no he needs to pick up some arms be those arms bristled with camel hair instead of uh fixed with uh with with iron sights matched matched with an aged wife he meets and doles uh unequal portraits unto a savage race that hoard and sleep and feed and know not bob now that that's not insulting Bob Ross's wife. That's you're talking about Tennyson, right? Yes, I'm, okay, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting from Tennyson's Ulysses. Okay, uh, we have uh, one is, direction from the OTI legal department, and it's not to, to insult Bob Ross's wife. That's our <laughs> one thing we're not allowed to do. You, you and your metal arm had one <laughs> job. <laughs> <laughs> and that is not to have your brainwashing overcome by the power of love. Well, but that's a, we'll talk about it. But I loved how that was handled in this movie. I loved how they handled it in this movie. I loved, love, 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 love. But you, we should, we should, put, we should table that because it must be discussed later. Yeah. Um, okay. But yeah. But uh, and at length. Um, but also, yeah, but, how a lot of the how a lot of the important things in this film happen inside a museum exhibit. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Name the last, like, three moments of your life. You know what? In fact, name one significant moment of your life that happened inside of a museum uh, exhibit, right? Uh, I mean... <laughs> I, I don't know if I should. My point is, that you can't that you know? I mean, I'm I'm sure I'm sure we could come up with. Something, oh no, I but... I definitely realized that I wasn't in love while I was in a museum exhibit. That was kind of a difficult one. I was like at a museum, and I'm like looking around, and I'm like looking at the other person, and I'm like, yeah, this isn't going to work. <laughs> and I've like felt that pang in my chest. Just because like... they, they didn't respond to the Temple of Dendur in quite the quite the way you you had hoped. Yeah, no, clearly it was because I was pop quizzing them on the contents of the curation. No, no, no. It's because it's a place where you can walk in silence with another person, which is not something – which if you're of the kind of ilk that 
fills silences with words, you may not actually spend time with yourself in silence with someone else very often. Uh, and that you might not have time to discover things. Anyway, the point is, this is not about me. This is about Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Well, actually, it's not, it's about Captain America, colon, the Winter Soldier, right? Because it's not Captain America, comma, the Winter Soldier. Yeah, not, not knowing Marvel, uh, books a whole, a whole lot. I, um, or or at all, I did not know whether the Winter Soldier referred to Captain America, mm-hmm. um, or whether it referred to some sort of antagonist. And and in fact, the latter is true. I've yeah. I've given to understand. Yeah, I mean, in the strict sense, but I think there are ways in which it refers the other way too. But it's sure. more of an artistic. Yeah, thing. yeah, right, exactly. That the sort of he's he feels like he's outlived his usefulness and is sort of, uh, despite being in prime physical shape, is mentally sort of aged and kind of in the winter of his perception of himself or the perception of the country or or, or his life. Um, but but uh, now is the winter of my discontent turned <laughs> glorious summer soldier. Um, the uh, uh, the summer soldier. Is the the uh, is what high school students become when they riot at the very last bell of the 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 uh, of the school year, right? When at three o'clock they go and textbooks are ripped to shreds and thrown into the air, and lockers are defaced, and a um, you know I I don't know if this happened if this happened where you went to school. It it certainly didn't happen where I went to school, but I imagine that it it could happen somewhere, like in a like in a, a teen sex comedy or something. <laughs> in a like dream that. space where Alice Cooper schools out plays like instantaneously as soon as the bell rings in the last class and i just see sort of platoons of of you know paramilitary operatives uh formerly high school students right like waging a uh waging a a a war from you know i don't know from classroom to to classroom uh just just wreaking havoc where wherever they go and leaving the uh uh, leaving the school in a shambles and a principal in a uh, you know in a in a short sleeves shirt and tie, um, shaking his fist at them, saying, "Grr, are you crazy kids?" That's that's what right. I'm thinking. Well, because about. that's the nature of authority, right? Is that the nature of authority is that when time is set aside for a given thing, people spend that time doing that given thing, and when that time elapses, people's behavior instantly changes. Right? Like <laughs> that's how it works, right? Like that's why until the instant you leave your job, you you key in on it with a laser focus, right? <laughs> and then as soon as your job time is over, you are immediately checked out and you have immediately moved on. Um, I mean, that's a fantasy, right? Like the idea that the, if a if a student is capable of like charging out of the school and defacing lockers like instantly after the bell rings, you know, well, why is is the bell the only thing? I feel like I feel like this is like a uh, <laughs> this this is this is like a um, a a, uh, a true detective solution to a Fast Times at Ridgemont High problem. <laughs> where it's like if the only thing holding these people together is the school bell, <laughs> then, then then why don't we just never ring the bell? <laughs> The bell is the problem. I don't hear no bell. But yeah, yeah, that's clearly what it is. They've, they've learned well, that the bell is the problem. I mean, I don't know. I can say, I mean, a, a couple things about that. Like, one, it strikes me that there, there is a sense of things like building up over time, right? And like, usually by the time summer rolls around, that sort of spring fever and, you know, and whatever, like, has... Uh, 
um, has reached a, a boiling point. So there is a like there is a, a dynamic of sort of increasing pent up uh, youthful energy, and and then like. Um, it's the the bell is not, of course, the cause. In fact, but like it is a proximate cause. You know, that is to say, the bell is not entirely blameless in this scenario. Uh, though, though, I think you're quite right that it's not the um, you know wh- when the kids run run wild, wh- what with their reefer madness and whatnot. Um, they, uh, you know, the bell is not entirely to blame, but but is not entirely blameless. I think. Well, certainly Hydra would lead us to believe that there are certain people who are predisposed to violating the edicts of the bell and that, in fact, to create the ideal high school environment, we should assassinate them via gunship from uh, <laughs> from a safe distance of 3,000 feet, right, I believe. Uh, but no, I hear you. I hear you. I do remember school bells ringing. Yeah, no, no. There is. I mean, there is a movie about that. It's called The Breakfast Club. Yeah. You know, yeah. Where, Hydra, where Hydra comes in and tries to take out um, – you know, tries to take out ringleaders of the various factions. <laughs> Is that and, the sign that the guy's making with his hands when he <laughs> he does the like the face forward, the, the the horns forward? Like you mess with the bull, you get the horns, but it's really the hydras. Is that? What yeah, it is? exactly. Yeah. He's, yeah, he actually you can hear him under his breath say, "Hail Hydra!" Hey Matt. On the, hey Matt. Yeah. yeah. Hail Hydra. <laughs> 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 that's that, I love that 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 you can say that in the same tone that you'd say, dude, your your flies open, <laughs> dude, your your hydra's hailing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you've got a hydra in the barn. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, so um, so what what do you think of of Captain America? <laughs> well, here, <laughs> let me let me ask you a question, Matt. Here's a pop quiz, hot shot. So you have to save the world, but your mind-controlled best friend from childhood who's been enlisted with the enemy is the one thing that stands between you and saving the world. Yeah. What do you do? Right. And the stupid answer is convince your mind-controlled best friend that because he used to use your best friend, he shouldn't try to stop you from uh, saving the world. That is the stupid answer. That is the answer that is in Spider-Man 2. That is the answer that I've been railing against in this podcast for five years. The smart answer, and the answer rightfully taken by Mr. Captain America himself in this movie, is choke out your friend and save the world and <laughs> deal with him later. Deal with him later. He is not an urgent Concern. The, he is, if the world isn't saved, then there's no time for any sort of therapy, let alone you know, the kind of uh, psychoactive medication he's going to require on his road to recovery from mind control. So you choke out your friend. You know, you do that little thing where you, you put you get put in a sleeper hold. Um, you know what? We know that unconsciousness is very damaging to the brain, much more so than in movies. But in this situation, probably still worth it. Choke out your friend. Save the world. Go back. Do it later. Do it later. Do it later. Do it later. And I think that that was that was an extremely admirable, admirable choice this movie made in how it told its mind control story. And I, I wanted to praise it. And I was I was dreading. I was dreading the moment where where Bucky was like, and where, where Captain America's like, you have a choice, and he didn't say something stupid like to to save the country that saved all of us, or just to, to what is your sense of duty, or or even just like you with me till the end, right? And it's like, or even like have the stupid thing where like like. Bucky like shoves his metal hand into like some sort of grinding mechanism, like the brave little toaster, and is like, "Go 
Steve, I've got this, right? And then, like, Steve, like, Steve Rogers jumps off of the helicarrier, and it explodes, and, and people look up, and it's like, who's that? And he's like, an American hero, right? And he's like, that's the real Captain America. And then I vomit all over the movie theater floor. <laughs> You've wasted my time. Um, so actually, that, that, that wouldn't be that, that bad, but still, it's it's ridiculous. But, um, but your point your point is that that didn't happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen, and I like and that. Thank goodness. Yeah, and I mean, and and to clarify, this isn't just because it's stupid to set up mind control as a plot device and then to remove its significance arbitrarily at any event. It's also like, well, what does mind control really... It's not, arbi- it's not arbitrarily, right? It's at the point where we couldn't figure out a better way. Yeah. Well, yes, in-universe. <laughs> the arbitrariness is entirely in-universe. Right. Like, out of universe, we know it's not arbitrary. But the point is, why are you using mind control in your story in the first place? And and what is it... What, you know, Bucky has been mind-controlled. What does that mean? Right? So, so let to unpack the symbol of the winter soldier a little bit and it is a symbol it's a signifier that signifies multiple things um it's uh and so it signifies and they don't really go into this that much in the movie but uh the character in the comic books in, in particular the reason he's so young is that he's periodically refrozen right so they, they only thaw this guy out long enough to go do assassination missions and then they freeze him again Right, and he's so he's the Winter Soldier for that reason. He's the Winter Soldier because he's frozen most of the time. Uh, he's also the Winter Soldier because in the comic books he works for the Soviet Union, uh, and so the Soviet Union is associated with winter because Russia is associated with winter because of Napoleon and all that other stuff, and because it's cold. And so that's also why he's the Winter Soldier, and also because of the whole like winter of our discontent, winter being a time of political strife and, and despair. Now, Captain America, Steve Rogers. Uh, was also frozen in ice, for, but all at once, whereas the Winter Soldier has been – Bucky Barnes has been frozen in ice like periodically over time, right? And so this, this sort of question – the Winter Soldier is somebody who like comes, uh, comes alive like briefly after like his life has been sort of taken away from him. He doesn't enjoy a spring or a summer. He only has this like one period of his life that's kind of in his suspension, and it's surrounded by coldness and isolation. Um, and even like sensory – he doesn't even sens- have sensory experience in the way that we do during these times. Right. And so like so this for Bucky, this state of affairs for Bucky of having been, you know, having his life taken away from him and becoming an institutional tool of the state has removed his identity and has removed his capacity for the enjoyment of the things in his life that matter to him, most notably friendship. Uh, and it's not really a sensory enjoyment. I described it as sensory when I was describing the phenomenon of it. But in the context of the movie, it's an emotional connection. It's that Bucky has had – from him, he has been stripped the capacity for knowing people and, and caring about them because he knows them and he knows who they are. right? And, and there's this recognition that's associated with it. And it's, it's very connected culturally to the camaraderie in classic World War II movies, You know, things like The Longest Day and The Great Escape. And I mean I, I know that there are better ones uh, – not better ones, but other ones that are or maybe better exemplars, but I'm not the huge, uh, you know, the the huge uh, uh, connoisseur of World War II film. But if somebody wants to leave an example in the comments of like the best World War II buddy movies, but Saving Private Ryan is basically like the 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 sort of sequel movie to all those movies. It's the movie. It's the sort of meta. It's the movie that puts together uh, that whole tradition, right? The sort of Greatest Generation idea of what it meant for men to be friends uh, in this t- time of war. Um, and, and this is the thing that's been taken away from Bucky because of the way that the state has used him. And, uh, in that sense, his mind control is like a really deep personal violation. And it's something that it should offend us and disgust us. 
uh, and is meant to defend dis- – and is, I mean meant is irrelevant, but does, I think, offend and disgust us. The thing that's happened to Bucky is terrible, and it's not – and when something that terrible happens to somebody that you care about, it's not the kind of thing that can just be made okay, right? It's not the kind of thing that you can just fix right away. Uh, it's like a wound. It's a horrible trauma. Like even if even if Bucky were able to shake this off, he would have to go into therapy for a long time, and he would probably have to be on drugs. I mean, and this movie acknowledges that, right? Like it connects it because Falcon is a runs a support group for people who are going through through trauma. Like this movie is. Yeah, I was I was about to say what you, what you're saying is sort of like, um, you know, a, a uh, sort of an, an older mentor of mine uh, from earlier, a teacher from from my high school days, uh, had been in in Vietnam and sort of d- d- played the Emmanuel Kant card when when he talked about his own sort of anti war sentiments after having been in the army during Vietnam, and saying that uh, in order to in order to have an army, right, you have to treat people as a means mm-hmm. uh, and and not as an end, and and that so it's in addition to being a I mean to because to talk about a, a sort of horrible person violation you're talking about you hope an exception rather rather than the rule but it, but it strikes me that the kinds of things you're talking about that is to say um, taking taking people and transforming them into a, a tool of the state uh, mm. and you know treating them as a sort of means to an end rather than as being an, an uh, end in themselves right is is also a metaphor for just the normal functioning of a military right or a, a normal functioning of a of a military that is sending people to to fight and die and be traumatized in in horrible wars, and you know all wars are horrible, so yeah. there you know so there so there it is. Um, rather than being this sort of extraordinary thing, because there's only one Winter Soldier, and you know the the and he happens to be the friends of our hero, you know. Um, it, I mean, it strikes me that that this has a has a, a larger resonance. Um, just in terms of the just in terms of the the uh anti war message of the the movie or the yeah. sort of problems of war yeah, i mean even, even i would say more than an anti war message it has an anti militarization message right uh, yeah, yeah. yeah cuz this this harkens back to the conversation between Captain America and Nick Fury, right, and Sam Jackson, where uh, Captain America, where Nick, where Nick Fury is like, you guys back in World War II, you know, you Greatest Generation people, you did a lot of bad things too. I know I did bad things, but you did a lot of bad things too. You're not perfect. And he says, well, yeah, we did it in the cause of freedom, and 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 that is obviously the word freedom is very difficult to have mean anything anymore because it's been just so violated across the political spectrum over the course of the last 20 years. It's very difficult to pinpoint exactly what it what it means. Um, and I'm sure that's only because it's the last 20 years that I was pay- old enough to pay attention. I'm sure it's been run up and down the flagpole, as it were, uh, any number of times. But it's not – this movie is about not just the army doing this to all the people who are in the army. It's about the government – and the controlling enterprises in general trying to do it to everybody. That's really what the Insight Project is. It's, un- it's identifying – and the Insight Project is the name of the project that puts the hovering helicarriers in suborbital position and has them mass execute anyone who could potentially undermine the social order as calculated from like their tweets right like um yeah. and boy if your tweets are a measure of your disruptive faculty i'd just be flattered to have them read honestly but, um, <laughs> but yeah but that's the whole point is right is that hydra hydra sees all people as a means to an end 
And that end is humanity, and the end is an orderly humanity. The idea is, you know, people they can't handle their own freedom, right? Like uh, they need to be freed from their own freedom, um, and and it's really is because we aspire to a perfection in humanity, and the individual people get in the way of that. And in that sense, the thing that is, yeah, the thing that is done to soldiers is a microcosm of the thing that Hydra is trying to do to everybody, which is in turn something that the militarization of civilian society is threatening to do to everybody by, you know, and, and any sort of totalitarian regime threatens to do to everybody by monitoring all your, your behavior and all your communications and dictating what's acceptable behavior or not, and then using its kind of uh, over overarching ability to gather and process information and... and uh, and the power that it then has to interfere with your life in various ways to do basically like take away your own personal agency and and the implication is that it will cause horrible traumas additionally like there will be additional horrible traumas like you know these when when people become mo- like mobilized quote unquote in this manner uh towards this purpose which is not the human purpose i've got a lot of uh Got a lot of Meister Amon on the brain today because of Game of Thrones, and I can't I can't help but think but of his great speech where he's like you know, where like the you know the gods made us for love and that's our great tragedy, right? Which is like, and I mean I won't get too far into it, but just then one of the big themes in Game of Thrones is that you have your duty, right, and then you have love, and you have to choose right between duty and love, and that's not really a spoiler for Game of Thrones. That's just a general statement of the theme of the show, and uh, but the tragedy is that like. People would, people in general would much rather choose love because that's really what we're made for, made to do. Like that's what we're, you know, to the extent that we're designed, that's what we're designed for. And and duty is something that emerges from social constructions. But yeah, but it's like creating a peaceful humanity is not the reason that people exist. Um, to the, you know, I mean, and it's like, well, what reason exists? Are there reasons at all? Like that sort of thing. But that's a whole other question. Um, but yeah, but I think that's sort of how I see it: is that you're using, they're using the trauma of survivors of uh, and people who've come back, service members who've come back from military campaigns as a gateway and an and and analogy really to uh, the, the, the wound to all of our uh, lives and all of our dignities that would be perpetrated by a totalitarian encroachment of a militarized uh, intelligence infrastructure. Um, and also robots with machine guns flying through the skies, which is something that happens in real life, which is pretty crazy. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> um, and screw you, Amazon, for making it look cute. We sure we know we are not going to do that. So stop that. Um, actually, I posed this question to my girlfriend when we left the movie: Which movie do you think is a more nuanced critique of the American intelligence infrastructure scandal and the American uh, overseas drone program scandal? The reboot of RoboCop or Captain America Two? Which one do you think really nails it? Uh, <laughs> I think it's a well, tough question. It is, yeah. I mean, it is a it is a tr- tough question. I'll say this about RoboCop, right? Like, um, it gets the threat model a little closer, right? It's not like there are a bunch of uh, it, it's it's not like there are like three a finite number, a number that you know two flying protagonists can can uh, outmaneuver. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way. Make the targeting chip something that you can't just pull out and, you know, (laughs) put a lock on a door. Just spitballing here, you know, just spitballing some ideas here, uh, Hydra, for your, uh, for your, well, I guess, I guess like uh, super uh, uh, well thought out plots are not, not what we go to these movies for. But, um, well, no, that's not an excuse. 
That's not an excuse. I mean, we we know full well that there are degrees of suspension of disbelief, and that there is a pleasure in the resolving of plausibility where it can happen, right? And so it's like the idea that you have like a that basically that that the inner workings of the of the core computer system of this aircraft can be accessed from what is basically the outside of the aircraft. It seems right. is like a little bit implausible. There's like an elevator. Yeah, yeah. Don't put the crucial part of your, you know, weapons targeting infrastructure in a giant glass bubble. Yeah, exactly. And just don't, don't a, put just an, an idea. There. Don't put an elevator there that lets people summon it and move it around. It should right. stay in place. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Also, maybe like solder, right? A little <laughs> just just a little bit of uh of solder at the edges of the contacts just so, you know, when you when you rip out that that SSD looking piece of breadboard there. Um I'm just saying, you know, there are there are Captain Americas around. Yeah. Uh, oh, totally. And you you know, it's important uh it's important to get the the infrastructure. So so RoboCop gets the threat model right. Like it's not like there are these. It, it's not you know the threat is not monolithic and uh, monolithic and sort of easily taken out. The threat is is like they're they're like locusts or something. There are a bunch of drones. You know yeah. there are a bunch of surveillance cameras. Right there are a bunch of computers. Uh, watching you it's not like you can uh you can you know hit your missiles into one exhaust port and the whole death star um of the like the nsa domestic spying program will blow up that's not gonna happen i would also i would also say that the threat isn't the way one of the ways that robocop identifies the threat differently from captain america 2 is is that captain america 2 localizes the threat to like a number of very specific high level corrupt government officials right well not corrupt but but evil <laughs> they're not corrupt they're evil uh there's no sign that they're being bribed for example <laughs> um, well, they, are, they are corrupted by evil yeah the they, they they are they are desirous of undesirable things and uh, uh hey matt yeah Hydra. Um, and uh, in, Ro- in, in RoboCop, the big problem is the $600 billion in the PowerPoint presentation, which is the market opportunity for using you know drones for civilian law enforcement in the United States, which is a market opportunity that if Michael Keaton Steve Jobs isn't going to fill, then like – in the sequel, Treat Williams, Steve Jobs is going to fill it, right? Or Tom Bergen, uh, uh, um, uh, Tom Berenger, or Steve Jobs is going to do it, and like reboot RoboCop three, right? Like it's like it's the it's the 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 incentive to do it is very strong. There's an efficiency in doing it that is going to guide various public or private institutions to seek to do it, uh, regardless of the controls that are put in place to try to stop it. And it's an ongoing battle. Um, neither movie really proposes a solution that at all works. Although, you know, RoboCop, the story when done well is really about tragedy, <laughs> about like kind of like the the uh, the, the sort of conf- the irre- irreconcilable conflict between the individual and society. But uh, and that's but that's original, whatever. But it, it, to get back to Captain America two, um, there isn't is there really a solution? So so here, here let me let me pose let me pose another sort of question to you um related to this stuff which is um because i think that this is a movie that tries to have its cake and eat it too a couple of times i think it's relatively robust in treating it i think it it treats it well as a character story about these characters who are struggling with these questions and how do the struggling with these questions change these characters and, and how do they choose to make important decisions in light of all the things that are happening around them it's not a didactic guide uh, you know to how am i going to fix 
the you know the American intelligence infrastructure. It's not that. It's a, it's a superhero story. But if we are to examine the solutions that it offers, um, the solution of taking all of the government, the secret shield archives and all of the secret Hydra archives and putting them in public on the internet, right? So there's like, there's like a WikiLeaks thing happening here, right? So let's say we take everything and we put it out in public. Um, there's this idea that the transparency is going to undermine the ability of the authorities to oppress the public, right? Um, however, at the same time, uh, the, 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 the trick here is that do you really need these crazy flying helicarrier things? Because the access to the information about everybody's lives, right, and is, is out there. Like you can get that information and the crazy, uh, Hydra scientist algorithm of how to determine who is a threat. I mean, does it really matter whether it's right or not? No, we don't care whether it's accurate, right? It's just like the information is out there. So the, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that um, we at one, we, on one hand, we have a huge problem with the villains in this movie having access to information about everybody on the planet, right? We don't want them to have all this information. We don't want them to have this hooked up, uh, this hooked up connection to all the social media and everything else that will tell them where all the people that they want to go after are. But on the same time, we're advocating total transparency. Now, granted, it's transparency of the operations of the government, but suspend that question for a moment. Total transparency as a way to undermine the ability of the government to, to, to go after these people. I mean, do you see a potential conflict between the, these two priorities, between these two representations? Yeah, well, it, it is. I mean, it, well, look, what, what happens um, afterwards, I think, is, is sort of telling. I think that sort of the total transparency thing, the implications of that weren't, uh, weren't really thought through. Mm-hmm. And, and like in a lot of cases in these sort, in these sort of, uh, blockbuster entertainment as metaphor for uh, you know social problem of the day um, films. Uh, the the statement of the problem is usually a lot more persuasive than than the uh, right than the than the proposed proposed solution um, because the the you know the proposed solution really usually has a high uh, degree of blowing things up. Yes. Um, yes. Right. And that's like uh, that's that's interesting. I I was thinking while while you were talking, I was kind of thinking to myself, is there a film that that doesn't uh, that that actually portrays well the idea of like collective action and political will? Um, I think I've talked about on the uh, on the show before uh, there. Uh, there was a uh, short live television show called E-Ring uh, that was on NBC. I think it was on NBC. It had Benjamin Bratt and it had uh, in it Dennis Hopper, peace be upon him. And um, it was about the bureaucracy inside the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, so Benjamin Bratt is a young up and comer who who shows up at the Pentagon and uh, and Dennis Hopper is the old salt who who shows him the ropes and that we're all here uh, competing for the sec def's love, i.e. money. Uh, and that that is a line from that that thing that I remember to this day and probably will until the day I die. Um, because Dennis Hopper just read it with such uh, gusto and and uh, and grittiness and a, a sort of occult threat of violence. Anyway, so uh, the 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 like the climax 
of every episode. And you could tell it was the climax because it was presented in montage form and had like rousing music underneath <laughs> it. The climax of every episode was a montage of Benjamin Bratt taking a form around and getting like eight signatures on it. <laughs> Because that is what it took to get an operation approved in uh, in the Pentagon, and um, the, it's it's hard to dramatize that. It's hard to make it look visually compelling. Earring tried with the just the like a lot of fancy pens and just the sweeping motion of the ink across the paper uh, in super close up on the screen. Mm. They tried. They did their best, superimposing signature upon signature and like each with a slight little bit of drift on them, so that they they sort of moved around. The motion graphics were amazing, but um, it's it's much easier or or rather much more compelling visually to depict someone swinging a uh someone swinging a fist and you know punching his old best friend who now kind of looks like tim riggins from friday night lights in the face and uh that's a you know that's a a a lot easier to portray it it, do do you can you think of of a film where and and this is all connect, connected, believe it or not. This this whole rat hole I'm going mm-hmm. down because in in order to have a, a a proposed solution that is as compelling as the statement of the problem, uh, you would need to be able to to do that signature montage, you know, in a way that was actually uh, visually and dramatically compelling, yeah. right? You would yeah. need to be able to portray collective action and the operations of bureaucracy and uh, a lot of a lot of trade-offs some of which may leave like a bad taste in your mouth a little bit mm-hmm. um in order to uh in order to to make that work yeah can you think of a film that that does it i think the best visual device in a film for portraying political will is the sliding board with the 13 colonies on it in the movie musical 1776. Uh-huh. Right, because it's whenever one of the the states changes its mind about the Declaration of Independence, they have a pole, right, and they put the pole up and they hook it into the name of the state and they slide it and slam it into place in the yay or nay column of that giant uh, that giant that giant board. And there's that really touching scene where the representative from Georgia comes in, right, and uh, and all by himself like slides his uh, slides his vote over to the yay side. But then again, that's a corny movie musical that's one where you're led to believe that the significance of that's a genre where the significance of wooden boards is relatively high like as, as a device for telling stories right like yeah in the it's, forms I, of wagons I that, and <laughs> well i think that that like theater has an advantage in yeah. in this kind of uh, this kind of storytelling because you're you're allowed to sort of do that. You're allowed to have kind of metaphorical uh, elements, right? And it's sort of it goes to how how retrograde the the dramaturgy of our of our movies and TV shows uh, is. And I, I I know this is a horse I've beat on this this podcast before, but you know, look, I have a hammer, but but the world is full of nails, guys. Mm-hmm. It's like. Uh, it's really there's nails all around me, um, 
have I mentioned Law and Order Special Victims Unit yet on this uh, on this podcast? Um, right, like uh, you'd need something along the lines of what they did in Scott Pilgrim versus the World, where there were a lot, or like Crank, right, or Crank Two High Voltage. It's, it's by the way one of the reasons we like those movies mm-hmm. so much among the overthinking a crew because they actually uh, use use the visual medium in a way that is not sort of totally. Uh, totally just representative. And you can do things like see Scott Pilgrim's power-ups, you know, mm-hmm. as they go, or see Chevchelius's power-ups as they, um, uh, as they go. Mm-hmm. And I guess, actually, for all of that, Captain America Winter Soldier has a, a fair number of, of, like, documentary moments where there are old bits of... Um, old bits of film that you see and, you know, photographs and things like this. And there, there are sort of documents that have a different ontological status. I mean, Hey, I, I guess a lot of the stuff, um, a, a lot of the important stuff takes place inside a museum exhibit. And one of the, the climactic moments is captain America stealing his own costume yeah. <laughs> from the, the captain America, uh, museum exhibit, uh, you know, as if in de- defiance of the March of progress, um yes uh so this is all a long answer to your question what is my sense of the significance of the uh of the winter soldier um do you have another question? <laughs> sure, sure. No, this is, I mean, like, uh, but then, but then, I mean, the other thing I would, I would say is that I think we're invited. I think we're invited by the title to, uh, to consider what, in what sense, Captain America is also the Winter Soldier because he was frozen. He was frozen in time. I mean, he made the choice to be frozen in time. He didn't know he would be revived. He thought he was. Um, what he thought he was uh, uh, going he was to dead. his death. Yeah. yeah, he thought he was going to his death when he put the plane down mm-hmm. um, into the into the water, and uh, uh, you know, and so now he's back. Um, now he's back, and and in a sense, like he's he's had his identity, he's had his identity violated, though not not through not no one intended to do that. It just it just happens to. Um, happens to have been the thing that occurred. And uh, he, um, you know, feels out of sorts and he feels like uh, the things that made him want to be a soldier in the first place are ideals that the country has abandoned. And he doesn't recognize, um, uh, you know, a lot of the virtues that he considers American in uh, certainly in the the government or the leaders, um, the leaders uh, around him, you know. Uh, so, so, uh, you know, he is sort of, he is sort of a, a, uh, he's sort of a winter soldier as well. And there's, there's also a, a sense in which, um, you know, the thing I'll say for, for transparency is that it, it does make it harder, uh, it does make it harder to manipulate people. Well, no, that's not true at all. I take, I take my statement back because it's false. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, um, but it does complicate the process of, of manipulating people, right? Like television advertisements are completely upfront about their desire and, and to manipulate you and sort of the fact that they're doing it in uh, incredibly sophisticated ways. Um, and yet they still work, right? Mm-hmm. And we know they work because people still spend millions and millions and tens of millions of dollars on them. Uh, so they must work, right? Mm-hmm. That's an exercise in question begging. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, 
you know, the the thing about transparency is that is that um, uh, you know, the, the the motives the motives may become clearer, or at least in the kind of the the fictional version of transparency, yeah. right? Like everyone's everyone's motives are sort of are laid out on the table. But it's you know a lot of the um, a lot of the the tension between. Uh, Captain America and Nick Fury in the first part of the movie has to do with with trust and with manipulation and you're not telling me everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And like trust is what right tr- trust is what makes an army an army uh, mm-hmm. otherwise it's just a bunch of of guys with guns. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know? Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, and and uh so yeah, so it it is like um there there is there is a problem with the transparency solution, especially given yeah. that, uh, given that sort of Hydra relies on uh, Hydra relies on transparency, but yeah. Hydra relies on a sort of different sort of transparency, right? Like Hydra relies uh, on the transparency that we all voluntarily yield to Foursquare, yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and like and and get nothing in return mm-hmm. for, mm-hmm. right? What do you get? Out of, I mean, I, out of Foursquare or out of like, I don't know, tagging people in Facebook. Well, of course, you get or... stuff out of it. Like the main thing you get out of Foursquare is you know where your friends are hanging out. Like the main purpose of Foursquare is you can, if you're going to go out on a weekend night, you can look at your phone and you can say, well, where are my friends or any of them out at bars that I might want to go to, right? Plus, you can also there's also a pleasure that you get out of like showcasing the places that you've gone to people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's I think that's that's wishful thinking to think that there isn't actually a payback that you get from using these social media. You certainly get mm. that dopamine shot of the gamification. Like that's something that is pleasurable that people enjoy, even if it's stupid. Um, and <laughs> I'm not I'm not willing to say that it's necessarily stupid. I mean, it's part of the mechanisms of social currency and of popularity and all this other stuff. Um, I mean, I still think it's the, being the mayor of something means something. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm, call me old fashioned, <laughs> but I think that that mayorship is a is a noble and and storied office. Captain Rather, you're a relic. The country's moved on. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. I mean, I I. Uh... I I wonder if if really if you were to you know <laughs> if everyone was transparent if everyone posted their motives on the internet I wonder if you still would want to give up so much uh, so cheaply um, yeah to I, Foursquare given given what you get what you get out of it uh, even if you do get all the things that Pete says you get out of it out of it uh, versus what they get out of it you know packaging it up and and selling it to people to to market to you or to target you from a giant helicarrier. <laughs> I mean the point is that the means to do the bad things to you is in the information it's you don't need a helicarrier right like that's the point is that you don't need a helicarrier to to target people uh and and certainly companies doing advertising know that right so as long as that information exists that power exists and 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 more specifically if the solution is to blow up the means to do it then you have to sort of blow up the infrastructure that supports the information so since since we don't have a political will solution to this which says well the answer is america the answer is checks and balances the answer is don't allow any any uh institution to have that much uh that many machine guns to shoot people with or whatever you know like and then it won't then everyone can tell everybody all their stuff and it won't be a problem like the movie doesn't really come to that conclusion 
Although, can I can I Downton Abbey this movie for a second? Yes. Okay. Oh, I, I have oh a bunch goodness. of notes. We've we've burned a lot of time on a couple of questions around this movie, and I have a bunch of notes about this movie. One of them is so so for those of you who've never listened to our Downton Abbey TV recaps, one of my favorite things to do with a Downton Abbey uh, episode is to look for that scene about a third of the way in, which is about nothing relevant to the rest of the episode, where they're talking about like sandwiches or something, and like and discover in it a metaphor for everything else that's happening in the rest of the episode, which is almost always the case in at least a good episode of Downton. Abbey. So, and it's and it's usually some innocuous line that's kind of funny, and it's usually said by Dame Maggie Smith. Um, but uh, in this movie, I felt like there was a great uh, Downton Abbey moment, right? Which is um, which was when Dame Maggie Smith showed up. Yeah, when Dame Maggie Smith uh, karate chopped that guy. No, no, it was uh, <laughs> it was when they were trying to assassinate Samuel L. Jackson. They were trying to assassinate Nick Fury. All of the all of the DC cops were trying to assassinate uh, Nick Fury, and he's he's driving in his souped up uh, Chevy Suburban or whatever it was, and he's asking the computer to engage flight mode so that his 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 car can like fly away from the pursuers who are coming after him, and and they're saying, oh no, the flight systems are damaged. Like these systems are damaged and he says is there anything that isn't damaged and he said they say the air conditioning is working perfectly uh-huh. right i thought that was a really weighty line because uh, first of all this is the winter soldier it's a movie about people who are cryogenically frozen and it uses cryogenic freezing right and preservation uh as in, as important discussions of institutionalization and dehumanization and it's also a movie about trauma and about like everybody being damaged and it's also about you know the post vietnam legacy right and this idea of the the the, tra- the tra- traumatized patriot right like the wounded warrior project is what this movie is also partially about and I think you're seeing a changing, a changing discourse around this. I think, and I think the Wounded Warrior Project is is a is a good uh, sort of locus for this sort of energy. But this sort of born on the Fourth of July idea of a wounded veteran being kind of like a, um, a, a kind of a kind of like a, I don't want to say a pity case, but sort of like just like a, just a total wreck, right? Like somebody coming back from war and having it just sort of annihilate them. Uh, maybe Born on the Fourth of July isn't the best example because I haven't actually seen the movie, but I know the image of of Tom Cruise in the wheelchair. Um, but there is an evolving sense in the culture of the – and it still has a lot to do with trauma and it has to do with mental pain. But it also has to do with kind of some degree of rediscovery and healing and moving forward that has to do with the Wounded Warrior Project. But anyway, you know, is is anything not damaged? Everything is damaged, right? America is damaged. Captain – America himself is damaged. Captain America like can never be whole again in the way he wants to be, which is really in this sense to be with his old girlfriend is really the big the big linchpin there, right? Like um and and you have to deal with the reality that everything is damaged. Shield itself is damaged. It's been infiltrated, it's been compromised, right? Like um like and and so and what's the one thing that isn't working? What's the one thing that is working? Our ability to to freeze people, to dehumanize people, to turn things into institutions. That's the thing that's still working. Or you could also interpret it as the air conditioning is still working. You could say our capacity for providing uh creature comforts is still available, right? Because that's another big statement the movie makes at one point which is that um you know by making it by making it not a war right by making by making the takeover of the united states let's be honest but the world by making the takeover of the united states and the world something that happens through infiltration and and institutionalization and not through war uh we 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 
are able to do it without people caring that much about it or opposing it, right? And it's, this is the old apathy argument, which I never really bought very much. It's it's an anti-communist argument, right? It's the fifth column. It's all that other stuff. Um, but it's like this. But it never. I find it doesn't necessarily lead to great solutions because it's like all it really says is you should be angry at people that you're not angry at, right? And it's like, well, there's a lot of those people. So like, which ones? And that's that's the question. <laughs> I like there. I all I see around me is columns. You tell me which one is the fifth one. You know, because like, I sure don't know. I count a hundred columns, right? So I'm not sure which one is the one that's going to compromise the country. Um, but yeah, but it, that's the point is that like in that moment where Samuel L. Jackson is like sort of crying out to the computer to solve his problem, uh, you know, the, the, it, it speaks to a lot of the major themes of the movie, and I thought that that was pretty impressive. Um, but I also, um, I also want to point also to another. Because his yeah. windows, his windows had been shot out at yeah. that point, right? Because turning on the air conditioning would just be wasteful, <laughs> you know. Because his windows are open. Well, his windows and- have been shot out, but then Captain America goes to the Apple Store, right? Hmm. Think about yeah. that. Think about that in your all-new Chevy Silverado, which is heavily featured in this movie. Which Follow happens- the money, sheeple. <laughs> there are helicarriers. Heli- there are black helicarriers that are made from the same machinery as the all-new Steve Chevy Steve Jobs with a metal arm. <laughs> oh, no, too soon, but yeah, probably. Um, but the other, the, uh, the, the, other, uh, the other line in this movie that I felt – another line. There are many of them. But there's another line in this movie that's very ideologically weighty and portentous um, is, the, is the line that begins the movie and ends the movie, right? You remember that line, the first line of the movie and the last line of the movie? Uh, you'll have to remind me. Uh, on your left. Oh, yes. Yes. So Captain America says to Falcon at the very beginning of the movie, on your left, on your left, on your left. And the end of the movie says, on your left. Do you think that this is a statement made by the movie in some way or through interpretation or what have you, author is dead and all that jazz, that the solutions to the political problems of the United States in the opinion of this movie are on the political left? I actually, I mean, I would would read it in a slightly different way, which is that um, the uh, what we think about as traditional America, you know, the greatest generation, the last good war, uh, you know, the people who, uh, you know, the people who worked and sacrificed, um, the people who are invoked with great sanctimony uh, for, uh, you know, to political ends a lot of the time, those people are, in fact, on our left. Right. That the that the tradition, uh, the the tradition that everyone wants to claim um, is actually being claimed, uh, uh, you know, by uh, by the left. Right. Mm -hmm. By the the politically progressive um, by the politically progressive filmmakers. Right. 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 I I just thought that was pretty that was pretty uh, on the nose when I realized it. But it occurred to me that maybe people don't realize it when they see it. I thought that was interesting. And and how about another uh, another another line in the movie that might be more significant than Aletzan. This is not quite as as high level. The line where Scarlett Johansson says to Captain America in the mall, um, kiss me, right? Or sorry, the Black Widow says to Captain America, or Scarlett Johansson says to Chris Evans. We shouldn't mix and match people, actors, with their uh, with their characters, although they do it all the time. Kiss me. Uh, you know, people are uncomfortable with public displays of affection, right? 
So and so by having Cap- the idea is that Captain America and the Black Widow kiss because the Hydra assassin is a human being, which is sort of like the weakness of Hydra, which is that it too needs to employ human beings until it replaces them all with robots, which it does many many times. Um, then uh, the the assassin will look away, will not see them because it is uncomfortable with looking at what's going on. So I'm I'm wondering about that line right throughout the beginning of the movie. And really through the whole movie, but in particular at the beginning of the movie, the Black Widow is constantly asking Captain America about his dating life, and particularly about the women that he meets casually in his life and whether he should ask them out on dates. Um, At the same time that she is asking him these things, she is conducting an independent mission given to her compartmentally by the chairman of, of S.H.I.E.L.D. or whatever that he does not know about. Is, uh, is the reason that Black Widow is initially asking Captain America about his dating life to m- mislead him, to make him uncomfortable so that he doesn't look into what she's doing in uh, digging up the uh, intelligence on the Inside Project? Well, I think she continues to do it after – uh, after her ruse is discovered, so I, I you know, I would say, and I mean, unless that's just a power move, you know, in which case uh, she is one awesome spy, which we know she is, yeah, you know, um, but uh, but no, I mean, I think it's actually meant to be a sort of, you know, a sort of caring, uh, caring move, though. Um, the what an awesome, what an awesome reading of that. What did you think of the Black Widow in this movie? Um, I think that she lacks a certain amount of the depth that she had in the Avengers. I think in the Avengers she was a more elegantly positioned character. Uh, her relationship with Hawkeye had a, a humanity to it that none of her relationship in this movie really have. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that she. I'm glad she's in the movie. She's a good part of the movie. She was a great part of the Avengers movie. Um, yeah. In this movie, I think. Um, I mean, it was cool that, that there was the uh, like. I want to compare it to Iron Man three in, yeah. in a sort of identity political sense, where or also, but also as a, a statement on drone warfare and yeah, you know, yet another the, one, right? Yeah, yeah. Yet another one. Um, but Iron we're Man, working. I mean, we're working it out as a culture, right? Like yeah. this is this is on our minds collectively at the moment. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. But so in Iron Man three. You know, you have uh, Don Cheadle as the War Machine, and you have uh, and you have Gwyneth Paltrow getting superpowers briefly near the end of the movie. If you haven't seen Iron Man three by now, I don't care. Um, yeah. Like this happens, and Iron you Man missed th- the, you missed the window. Yeah. And Iron Man three is made by the guy who made the Lethal Weapon movies. Uh, and so Don Cheadle has a certain uh, <laughs> he, he has he has a, he has a certain. Uh, 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 Murtaugh-ish quality to him, and that he like sort of stands behind the main character a lot with like a gun held and looks like very vigilant. But but there's an idea that these characters who are there to kind of fill out the roster are somewhat subservient to the awesomeness of the main character to an extent. Uh, you know that like that nobody in the Lethal Weapon movies is more awesome than Mel Gibson's character. Similarly, nobody in the Hurt Locker is more awesome than Jeremy Renner's character. Again, the Falcon guy was the black guy in the Hurt Locker too. In this movie. I felt like characters like the Falcon, the Black Widow, the the supporting cast uh, got to be just as awesome as Captain America was in their action sequences and in their character development sequences. I, I mean, I think that they didn't get as much time uh, in the front and center, but I didn't feel like the characters were shortchanged. Uh, and I think that this is both a win from an, an identity political standpoint, which is great, you know. And again, we don't want to belabor the point too much, but it's important to say that that's good. Um, 
but on the other hand, it's also it's also a win from an ensemble perspective in, in terms of working multiple characters into these kinds of movies. Because especially as you know, ones become twos and twos become threes, you know, and threes become you know obliteration or whatever whatever nonsense word you want to put after it when you've stopped counting. Uh, you know, these sequels, right? They have a way of accruing additional characters because you got to bring back the favorites from the previous movie and you got to introduce the fan favorites and like Spider Man three, right? Things just blowed out and all of a sudden you got a whole bunch of people. They're all doing nonsense. And it's a real challenge to work multiple characters, especially characters with the pre-existing histories in other movies, into a movie like this, which already is pretty heavily restricted on what can happen. Um, right? And I felt like, in that sense, the Black Widow was very well managed. Um, they knew that this wasn't really the Black Widow's story. They weren't going to go back and explain everything the Black Widow did. Um, and while some of the Black Widow's character development was stilted and not particularly, like, supple, <laughs> which is a weird word to use for it, uh, but I mean, like, in the sense that it felt stiff and forced, that was true of most of the character development in this movie. I thought a lot of the character development scenes in this movie, especially the dialogue was a little stilted, things felt yeah, a little, it was a little uh, Yeah, sure. It was a little schematic, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that was just as true for the Captain America character and as for anybody else. And and only the smoothness of Robert Red- Redford could really uh really soften that. <laughs> <laughs> soften that baseball mitt. Only the natural can can take a swing at that one. Um, <laughs> but uh <laughs> But yeah, but it's but I felt like I felt like she was a really cool part of the ensemble and I felt like she shared focus well. Um, and I thought that was cool. And I loved the scene where she turned out to be Angela Merkel or whatever, or like uh, <laughs> the British Angela Merkel is. Yeah, sure. The head of the IMF. Yeah. <laughs> she has come up in pre- – it was in Elysium. Um, <laughs> 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 oh, man. Um, but yeah, I, the, the interesting thing about her in, in – in, the interesting thing about about her and the Avengers to me was the way that she she deployed vulnerability yes. uh, as a sort of as a weapon, right? And so when she seemed to be when she seemed to be most vulnerable, it turns out that's when she was uh, in fact most in control. I mean, the first thing you see of her is her being interrogated and and tied to a chair, and then when the phone call comes, it's like, guys, I'm totally in control here. These guys are giving me everything I want. Why are you interrupting me? I'm in the middle of working, you know. And then and then with with Loki. Right, like she gets uh, she gets Loki to sort of spew forth a whole bunch of misogynistic, uh, infective, and you know reveal his plan. At which point she snaps out of it and says thanks. Right, like so it's it's uh, it's sort of a ruse. I, I for, for me her here a little bit was was perhaps a step backwards just in the the representation stakes and the identity politics stakes, um, because it was like uh, you know oh no I'm so confused right uh and and when she was vulnerable she was she was vulnerable right she wasn't really um she wasn't really uh you know i don't know calculating or sort of at a at a uh at a master plan um operating at a at a sort of higher master plan level uh than everyone else which is another thing that leads me to say that her interest in in uh the, uh the steve rogers dating life was not um uh, was not part of a uh uh, was not part of an elaborate ruse, right? Like it didn't seem like she had that many elaborate ruses uh, in this one. And I mean, because she's supposed to be sort of the morally flexible character who is sort of tortured by her her uh, moral flexibility, you know. And um, the the 
the tragedy for her is that, well, I thought I was joining the good guys. It turns out they're just as bad as, as everyone else I ever worked for. Um, which, which again strikes me as, as false, but, uh, you know, that, that was her, I mean, that was her arc throughout the movie and she needs to, I don't know what, what, what she's going to do after she walks out of that Senate hearing. Um, yeah. Speaking of, yeah. Speaking of transparency, like try to, you know, (laughs) you know where to find me. Um, I'll be getting my groove back. Uh, <laughs> is she, she's going to the Caribbean? What are you doing? <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you? I don't know. If you had to go find yourself, wouldn't you like to do it among nice scenery and like pleasant weather? And you know, I don't know, steel, man. Steel drums. Uh, I, mean, I don't know. There's the seven years in Tibet approach and the house Stella got her group back approach. Maybe there should be a race of some kind. People should. We should have an overthinking it race where we divide up into two teams. You know, Team Snow and Team Sand, and we see who uh, Team Ice and Team Fire, and we see who discovers enlightenment first, or whether who runs out of mojitos earlier. Uh, uh, you wanna you wanna uh, bring us home? You have any any more notes you wanna you wanna uh, delve into on Captain America uh, World Police? <laughs> um, well, yeah. So uh, so what about the pop culture references? There were two uh, that really jumped out at me that I really liked. Um, Marvin Gaye and what? Marvin Gaye. Oh no 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 no. Um, oh, that like. wasn't. I mean, we could talk about that one. Let's add that to the list. Um, <laughs> But the two that I really liked were uh, when Scarlett Johansson meets the old Nazi computer uh-huh. right, and says, uh, oh, would yeah, you like yeah. to play a game? Uh-huh. <laughs> Which I actually, had, I actually uh, had the pleasure of explaining to my girlfriend was from the movie War Games, right? the Matthew Broderick classic movie War Games. And I explained that plot and all that other stuff, which was nice. That was funny. Um, although it is, like, it is kind of funny because you know, Scarlett Johansson was like born the year that movie came out. Or whatever, or the character was because they list the character's birthday. Um, but that was cute, and also Samuel J- Samuel Jackson, Nick Fury's tombstone. Do you remember that? Yes, that oh. was that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and for those of you who might have missed it, uh, you know, they, Nick Fury's tombstone has listed on it, right? Like the the verse from Ezekiel. The beginning of the verse from Ezekiel. That is, of course, not actually a verse from Ezekiel. No, it's not. Yeah, that part actually, like, uh, there, there is a part of that line that is uh, in Ezekiel chapter 25, but it's not what it starts with. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, but it says the path of the righteous man, uh, Ezekiel 2517, in, in, on his... Uh, uh, on Nick Fury's tombstone, which of course the, is his um, big speech from Pulp Fiction, of course, yeah. that he's so famous for. And I thought those were those were fun. And I mean, uh, you know, there's the Apple Store, and there's the Marvin Gaye. I mean, what is there? So there are two musics. There are two big musical cues in the movie that happen when somebody is in a sort of a semi comatose state, right? Uh-huh. There's like Captain America's Victrola, which is playing kind of jazz music, right? Um, and then there's is it it's jazz that's playing it's sort of like big band jazz music that's playing when Nick Fury is is reclining in in bleeditude on Captain America's couch. Sure, um, yeah, it's uh, it's um, what, when uh, his neighbor says uh, you left your stereo on. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then there's the Marvin Gaye that's that Falcon recommends to Nick Fury at the beginning of the movie that he's then playing off of his presumably iPhone. Uh, at the because I didn't look twice because I wasn't paying that close attention, but Apple was all over this movie. Um, at when Captain America is in the hospital, is there something about that Marvin Gaye album that's particularly significant for this for this movie? 
it's not you're you're venturing well outside of my uh pop music expertise there so uh i don't know we'll have to do an episode of the tft podcast on it all right well you know what that's outside of mine too so um i know that uh i know that america that america is something that extends around the world as a dream but uh like america we have found our borders in in our knowledge of marvin (laughs) gay Right, absolutely. Uh, there was really only one other note I had, Matt. Taste in, taste in music stops at the water's edge. <laughs> From sea to shining sea, um, <laughs> as it were. Uh, but the only other note I had was, um, <clears throat> um, uh, Hail Hydra. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, if you want to join the conversation uh, about uh, Captain America World Police, which is, I think, what we're going to start calling it on Overthinking It, um, you can uh, uh, email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com and, uh, or call, uh, call 203-285-6401. There have actually been some calls to the number, um, people, sharing, people sharing their own uh, overthinking it stories. And we'll, we'll play a few of those now that, now that we've solved the problem. Uh, if you're noticing a little something different about, about our audio this week, I am having computer problems uh, at the moment. So it's... Um, we're sort of our normal podcast production yeah. uh, has been has been disrupted. We are using the backup. We're using the tape backup yeah. uh, in the underground bunker yeah. uh, for the podcast production system. And the you know the Toby Jones's German accent is um, yeah. We are doing the podcast production. Uh, is you know uh, who knows? It may sound like that by the time it's been processed by. Uh, by the uh, the backup processing computer, but um, a lot a lot of people said, Pete, uh, that you know they missed they missed the thing they missed their chance to share a remembrance as members of the three hundred club as three hundredth episode listeners. Uh, and my response to all of you is this: you have to follow us on Twitter. You know, you have to to get notifications anytime we tweet anything. That's how you'll know whether we are dangerous to Hydra's New World Order or not. Yeah. Just by following us on Twitter at Overthinking It. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's what you have to do. So our, our Twitter handle is Overthinking It. Um, Pete's Twitter handle is Fenzelian. It's his last name, but uh, as an adjective. So F-E-N-Z-E-L-I-A-N. Pete would be very happy if somebody read his tweets. So uh, we'd, yep. we'd, we'd like you to follow Fenzelian on Twitter and I am M Rather. You'll find those links in the show notes mm-hmm. as well. Uh, we'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Until then, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. deserve. Hail Hydra. Hail Hydra. Hail Hydra! 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 Hail Hydra!